Two weeks ago now, we looked at one of the most difficult and controversial passages in all the New Testament, Hebrews 6, 1-8. It begins by strongly encouraging Christians to get beyond the basics of the faith and to begin to dig deeper into the sublime truth found in Christ. The writer goes on to give one of the sternest warnings in the Bible with instructions to be sure that the word of God has taken root in our lives and therefore transformed our lives, not from the outside in, from the inside out. As we learn in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, <clears throat> will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Christian life is a transformed life. When we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and regenerated, our life looks different than it used to look. Some people will say, well, I know some Christians that aren't as nice as some people that aren't Christians. Well, that's the wrong comparison. I think if we're going to look at a Christian, we would say, you know, that person behaves differently than they used to. And so um, we don't compare ourselves among ourselves. Uh, firstly, we compare ourselves to Christ and find ourselves coming woefully short. And then in terms of sanctification, we compare ourselves with who we were yesterday and hopefully see that we're moving in the right direction. When the word of God plants itself in our heart, it brings forth a good crop. And so the warning is, look, you need to be sure that the word of God has been planted in your heart and it has begun to bring forth fruit. <clears throat> now, if you want to uh, find out what I said two weeks ago about Hebrews chapter 6, I'm sure we can get you a copy. Um, by the end of it, you'll probably be a little disappointed. That's okay. I don't mind if you're disappointed. <laughs> In me, that is. <laughs> um, but the challenge was to be in the Word of God. So. Today's passage I titled, Don't Be Discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Because the rest of Hebrews chapter 6 is really focused on the Christian moving forward in the Lord and not being discouraged. Now, <clears throat> He wouldn't have to tell us this if we were automatically always encouraged. But the fact of the matter is, and you guys all know it, that there comes, time, there comes times in the life even of a believer where we get discouraged. And when those times come, we need to be encouraged. And so that's what, really what we're going to be talking about today. Let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. <clears throat> For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. 
And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes and give us right understanding of this passage this morning. We pray that for each person in here, that we would be encouraged by your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So really in <clears throat> verse 9, the writer is saying, heed the warning. <clears throat> Just because I'm about to give you some encouragement doesn't mean that the warning isn't as serious as it always has been. The warning is serious. Heed the warning, but be encouraged. Continue on with Jesus. Remember, he was writing to Hebrews here. And the temptation for the Hebrews, uh, whether they were um, just uh, touching on for the first time some of the teachings of the church, or whether they were Hebrew believers that had just heard of Christ, the temptation was to go back to the way things were, the sacrificial system. And so the writer says, just continue on, move on. This Christ who I presented to you as being better than all of the shadows that you have been presented in the Old Testament, stay with him. <clears throat> so though he spoke, <clears throat> pardon me, though he spoke so severely, the writer to the Hebrews was confident his readers would pursue the truth found in Christ rather than the shadow found in their temple rituals. They wanted to pursue the shadow rather than the reality that cast the shadow. He thinks of their continuation in the faith as a natural outflow of salvation. He says, very interesting, he, after he gives this warning about those who, um, if possible, would fall away and then there's no other sacrifice, he says, but we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So we're, we're not talking about them. We're talking about you now. And I am confident of better things as you continue to pursue the truth in Christ. These struggling Christians needed encouraging, encouragement. These encouraging words after the strong warning of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, should not be understood to mean that the warnings in the previous verses are not serious. They are. They needed warning, 
but they also needed edification. Point two there on your outline is going to be where we're going to spend a vast majority of our time this morning. And that is this, God hasn't forgotten about you. God hasn't forgotten about you. And you might think, well, that's silly. I know what God is like. Of course he doesn't forget about me. He knows all things. He's in all places. He's all powerful. Of course he hasn't forgotten about me. But you and I both know, let's be honest with one another, there are times where even though we know that in our brain, in our heart, we feel as though sometimes we've been forgotten. Okay, you are not so righteous as to say, nope, never sense that. Never had that. From the moment I became a Christian, I've always just walked forward and uh, just felt completely encouraged all of the time. Well, then you should be up here and not me, probably. Because that hasn't been my experience. God sees and remembers. God sees and remembers. When we are discouraged, we may often feel as though we have been forgotten by God. You guys know what I think about feelings. Here I want to take a few moments to encourage you as well, as the writer here. Let's look at a few passages. First one in Psalm 103. It come up on the screen if you don't want to flip to it, but you're welcome to flip to it. Psalm 103, beginning verse 6. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Listen to this. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I am very thankful that the Lord remembers that we are dust. He knows all of the weaknesses that we struggle with. He formed us originally out of the dust of the ground and breathed into us the breath of life, but he remembers that we are dust. Also, let's read uh, Psalm 56, verse 8. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Do you think you've shed tears that God has forgotten? Nope, hasn't happened. Tears are precious to the Lord, and you shed tears, and metaphorically, he places them in a bottle of remembrance and holds them dear, keeps them. So you can think back of times where you have wept in anguish, and every tear that came from your eye was precious to the Lord. He remembers that you are dust and he keeps your tears in a bottle. The affection of our God. It is a sad testament 
to human weakness, for those of you that are stronger than I, that God incarnate, <clears throat> while suffering on the cross, had a deep sense of being forsaken by the Father as he took on our sin and guilt. Can you imagine that God himself taking on human weakness, human flesh, and suffering had this sense, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it any wonder then that there are times in our own lives that it seems as though God is far from us, weak as we are? Let us, like Jesus on the cross, go to the Psalms and in those times cry out to God with David's voice. One final scripture here, Psalm 22, 1 to 5. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's where the quote ends in the New Testament. But let's look at the rest of the passage that was, was in the mind of Christ. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. The anguished, the anguish doesn't last forever. We'll talk more about that. The anguish doesn't last forever. Those that trust him will see their way through. They will not be ashamed. Back to Hebrews. <clears throat> In verse 10, <clears throat> most ancient manuscripts don't have the words labor of. I'm not too concerned about it. Because it seems to me <clears throat> that a demonstration of love is going to involve some action or sacrifice for the sake of another person. You can say you love someone and their words, and they're important words, husbands. I've said that before. They're important words, husbands. You need to remind your wife <clears throat> that you love her because wives are forgetful. And not just when you messed up. So you can say you love them, but are you loving them? There's a huge difference. When you are loving someone, it seems to me that involves sacrifice and doing. Anything less than that might just be words. When I read this verse, the passage that immediately popped into my head was 1 Kings 19, 1 to 18. We're going to run out of time, so I'm not going to read them. You guys know the passage. Elijah confronts the king and the queen. And he says, you know what? It's not going to rain. And they get angry. And so finally Elijah leaves and he goes and hangs out in a cave for a while. And God takes care of him there. And he goes through this... Um, deep sense of being forsaken. God, I'm the only one left who is faithful to you. 
I'm the only one. Everybody else has failed and I am the only one. And would you just kill me now? It's time for me to go. I'm fed up. Just take me. It's all over. It's hopeless. And God says, nuh-uh. I've raised up and held to myself a remnant. <clears throat> You're not the only one, Elijah. Our fear that God has forgotten our work because there was Elijah. Look at all what I've done, Lord. And now everything's just going wrong. Our fear that God has forgotten our work and labor of love comes from relying on the attention and applause of people. It is true that some people may forget your work and labor of love. It's not only true, it's likely. <clears throat> but God never will. You were faithful to your spouse for your whole marriage, now they're gone. God is not forgotten. You lay all alone in a bed, weeping tears of anguish. God is not forgotten. You loved and raised your children to follow the Lord. God is not forgotten. You told the truth even when it brought you pain. God is not forgotten. You brought a meal to a hurting family. God is not forgotten. We were so blessed this week, people contacting us and some folks brought flowers and food. God isn't forgotten. There is coming a day when no heartaches shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying over there. And forever I will be with the one who set me free. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through that glorious land. What a day, glorious day that will be. All true. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to press on. I love that idea of pressing on. That which is in front of you, you press against and move forward. We must keep up. Some of you aren't going to like this. It's okay. We must keep up our good work to the extent we are able. I want to just show you a verse here, Ephesians 2.10. Those of us that are born again. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for sitting back in our rocking chair and waiting for him to call us home. Ah, sorry, that's the, that's the new Tychrobe version. It's not authorized. Why did he save you? Why did he create you in Christ Jesus? For good works. Now that you are his, he's got a job for you to do. A good job. To serve others, to love others, to sacrifice yourself for others. 
that others might be created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Folks, if you name the name of Christ, it's not time to sit back and wait for the trumpet. It's time to get busy and do what you can to serve the one who bought you. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to imitate the faith and patience demonstrated by Abraham. I love that he brings up Abraham here. We are grateful to remember Abraham's life and to see that he had neither perfect faith nor perfect patience. You don't have to think too much about Abraham's life to recognize that uh, he had much faith and much patience, but it wasn't perfect. If Abraham could share in some of our weakness, then perhaps we can share in some of his faith and patience. Because we are not all that unlike Abraham in the way we are put together. We should not let discouragement make us sluggish, leading to the sense that we might as well give up, like Elijah. This Greek word here for sluggish is used only twice in the entire New Testament. It's used here and it's used in the previous chapter, chapter 5, verse 11. If I were to give a word that means the opposite of sluggish, I thought about this for a long time, what word would I use to demonstrate the opposite of sluggish in that Greek form? Because I think that if we see the opposite, at least we know where we ought to be heading. And the word that I came up with was vibrant. Vibrant seems to be the opposite of sluggish. We need to be vibrant in our hearing of the word of God. We need to be vibrant in our pressing forth. When we are discouraged, though, first we lose the desire to press on, and then we lose the desire to go on. David, King David, showed a great answer to discouragement. We'll read it. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Let's look at 1 Samuel 30. I think it might come up, Timothy. There we go. Let's read this brief passage here. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept. Look at this. Until they had no more power to weep. Some of you have been there. You cried until you just ran out of energy. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. Can you imagine the situation David was in? His wives had been taken. I saw a brief commentary. David was mourning because they didn't take the rest of his wives. But that's not, that, that's not true. Everything he loved had been taken. His wives, his children. Not only that, but the people that followed him were in anguish because their families had been taken too. And they pointed at David and said, David, this is all your fault. 
and, he, and they all wept until they didn't even have any energy to cry anymore. Some of you have been there. And look what David does. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He didn't wait for someone to come alongside him and lift him up. Would have been nice had there been one of the people. And they would have come alongside and said, hey, David, it's okay. Come on, we can get through this. Nobody did that for David. So what did he do? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He sought the face of the Lord even though he was all alone. We don't have to wait for someone to encourage us. Sometimes when there is no help coming, we can look to the Lord himself like David did and be strengthened. It is a blessing when others encourage us, but we don't have to wait for it. We can be encouraged in the Lord even when we're all alone. God's promises are reliable. God's promises are reliable. It is easy to wonder, will God really come through in my situation? Here I have this situation that I'm facing. Is God really going to come through in this one? Sure, I've seen him come through in other ones, and I've seen him come through for other people. But what about this one? I kind of doubt about this one. God came through for Abraham, even sealing his promise with an oath, which in English we have a little bit of difficulty telling the difference between a promise and an oath. I'm not going to get into that today. In fact, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. This oath showed that God's promises, like his character, are unchanging. The two immutable, I like that word, but it means unchanging, the two immutable or unchanging things are God's promise and God's oath. The Greek word, I found this interesting, for promise has the same root as the, as the word angel, messenger. I'll, you can think about that for a while. Once you see how it fits together, it's really quite beautiful. So when God talks about his promise, it uses the same root as the word angel. Think of Joseph and Mary, for example. The angel came to them and said, this is what's going to happen. When God makes you a promise, it's every bit as sure as that angel coming to Joseph and Mary and saying, this is what's going to happen. God's promise is absolutely unchangeable. He cannot lie. When God makes a promise to you through his word, it is every bit as sure as if Gabriel himself came before you and told you of it. One of the most comforting promises, I think, is found in John 14, 1-4. I think that may come up. Absolute promises. Let's just read them. Jesus speaking. Let not your heart be troubled. That's hard to do already. It's like, oh man, I'm not off to a very good start. Let not your heart be troubled. Why? <clears throat> you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. 
that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Absolute promise of Christ. You believe in him, he's going to prepare a place, and he will come again for you one day. If Jesus were anything less than God, there may be reason to doubt these words. But God's promises are sure. He cannot lie. I need to hurry. God isn't content to give us mere consolation. He wants to give us strong consolation. What a wonderful phrase that is. When one after another of all earthly props and comforts have given away, we need strong consolation then. Not in our pictured trials, our anxieties and things that come that way, but our real trials. Not in our imaginary afflictions, but in the real afflictions and the blustering storms of life. To rejoice then and say, though this is not the way I would have liked it, Yet Jesus has made with me an everlasting covenant, perfect and certain. This is strong consolation. Strong consolation, neat translation. It could also, be, it could be translated mighty paraclesis. Where do we hear that word? The paraclete, the comforter. Mighty comfort. Mighty counsel, mighty help, mighty comfort. That's what God wants to bring us. Think of the context of the Old Testament quote the writer gives us in verse 14. He's talking about Abraham and talking about how Abraham also would have needed strong consolation. <clears throat> well, I dare say, God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son, Isaac. And the place he is sent to make this sacrifice is three days' journey. I can't begin to imagine the agony of three days' journey. Do you think Abraham slept a whole lot? Not if he was anything like me. <clears throat> Can you imagine the agony that Abraham must have been experiencing between verse 3 and verse 4? Let's just look at it. It should come up here. There it is, verse 3 and 4. So Abraham rose early in the morning, yeah, he wasn't sleeping anyway, and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place God had told him. And then there's a little tiny space. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Can you imagine the anguish Abraham was going through as he's traveling and they stop and make camp. And he knows day after day he's getting closer to the place where he's going to have to bind his son and take his life. He didn't need mere consolation. He needed strong consolation. Imagine the agony Abraham experienced between verses 9 and 10. Then they, claimed, then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed wood in order and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. 
And there is the son whom he loves laying there struggling, uh, bound, ready to be, have his life taken. And there's just a little space and it says Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham didn't need a little consolation. Abraham needed strong consolation. The strong consolation that we are promised in Christ when things are hard. This is one of the most powerfully moving moments in all of the Old Testament. Can you imagine the strong consolation Abraham would have needed? Can you imagine the joy he felt when he looked upon the ram that was to replace Isaac? There was the ram with a crown of thorns prepared to be the sacrificial replacement. That's what brought him joy. He looked at the one who was wearing the crown of thorns and was willing to be the replacement for his son. And that too ought to bring us strong consolation as we look at the one who bore the crown of thorns and was willing to be the replacement. God has a refuge of hope set before us, Jesus. I think the writer here is using the word refuge. He was very familiar with the Old Testament to refer to the memories of the Hebrew, to refer the memories of the Hebrews back to the cities of refuge that God provided through Moses and described in Numbers 35. You can look it up if you like um, this afternoon. Uh, Numbers 35, 9 through 28. I don't have time to read it, but I'm just going to give you some of the details about these cities of refuge and show you how they pointed to hope and how they pointed to hope as a shadow of Christ. Number one, the cities of refuge were within easy reach of the person in need. Number two, the cities of refuge were open to all, not just the Israelite. No one who comes to the place of refuge is turned away in time of need. Number three, the cities of refuge were places to abide. In the time of need, one never came to the city of refuge just to have a look around to see the nice fountain. They came to live there. Number four, the cities of refuge are the only alternative for one in need. Without this refuge, destruction was certain. Number five, the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. To go outside the provided refuge means certain death. And finally, the cities of refuge provided full freedom. Do you guys remember? When was the person that was in this city of refuge able to just be absolutely at liberty upon the death of the high priest? The death of Christ brings us full liberty as we abide in him. Finally, Jesus will lead us into God's glory. The anchor was a common figure for hope in the ancient world. You don't need an anchor for calm seas. The rougher the weather, the more important your anchor is. Hope is exactly the medicine discouraged Christians need. The folks that were reading this letter and you, if you're discouraged. Hope is that anchor. And so we look, what is the hope that Christ has for us? That's an endless list. I can't begin to even touch on the things, the hope that we have in Christ. That You can do that 
throughout the week. We are assured of this access into the presence of God because Jesus has entered as a forerunner. That's an interesting word. A forerunner, which was the ancient Greek word prodomos, he was a military scout. A forerunner goes forward into new territory. He gives all the necessary information to those that will follow. He comes back for them and he leads them on. If Jesus is the forerunner, then we are the afterrunners. And there is no forerunner if there are no afterrunners. He has gone before us and he is our pattern. And then finally in the last verse, it says that by mentioning, the, the writer mentions the veil in front of the Holy of Holies. Remember this? He's, he's come full circle now. We, we left off talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And now at the end of this, this um, encouragement and warning, he comes back to the veil and reminds us of his previous start into the subject of Jesus as our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I think the next one, the next, there we go. There's an artist's rendition of what it would have looked like inside Solomon's temple. You see that veil there. We think of a curtain. We, we bought a curtain for our son. And it's about this thick, right? The veil that was woven together there that the Jews had put between uh, the holy place and the holyest place, it was a curtain about four to six inches thick. And Jesus died, and from the top to the bottom, the veil was rent in two. Can you imagine the tremendous amount of power it would take to tear a four to six inch veil? But for God, it was nothing. Okay, folks, Christ has done what it takes now for you to access the presence of the Father. It's open. And he is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Is will, will be the high priest, not for today or tomorrow, but forever. Let's pray.